welcome to Conversations About Life. Good morning, and thank you for being a part of the podcast. All right, my pleasure. It's Dr. Mark Thorne. Um, basically, what I know about you, I got from your Facebook profile page about like your background and studies. Mm-hmm. And it's, it lists words such as classics, history, antiquities, and things like that. How would you put your field and expertise? I uh, have spent my career thus far as a classicist, which uh, sounds like some sort of disease because it ends in cyst. But in fact... Uh, I'm a professional who studies ancient Greece and Rome, the ancient Mediterranean, everything about it, um, with a focus on Greek and Latin, and uh, the study of, for me, ancient Roman literature is kind of my specialty, um, specifically epic poetry. Hmm. Uh, so that's what I've done, but um, I'm getting to add new definitions uh, to who I am because I'm in a period of transition right now. Um, I, my department, uh, my last institution, uh, has been eliminated by the college, and uh, university faculty positions are hard to come by in good times and impossible in pandemic times. So I am no longer doing that at all. I'm uh, not by choice, but by sheer necessity. The jobs simply don't exist anymore. And um, so after, uh, here in my uh, mid-40s, I'm retooling, uh, career pivot, as they might say, the the forced midlife crisis, (laughs) and I'm studying to become a software developer. Software developer, that is quite a change. Yes, (laughs) yes. Uh, But I've spent, you know, it, it is quite a change going from the study of ancient civilization to the tech sector, but in one sense I've spent my entire professional life paying minute attention to the syntax of languages, Mm -hmm. and as a software developer you spend all day paying minute attention to the syntax of languages, uh, encoding languages, so there definitely are transferable experience and skills. And what are you doing to move in that direction so I knew uh, I found out in the summer of 2020 last year that the college was um, recommending that a, a group of faculty who had been tasked with figuring out how to eliminate like 27 faculty positions uh, their recommendation included reducing the uh, classics faculty at the college down to one and I figured that the endowed chair is going to keep his job, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not going to. So after a period of mourning, um, the loss of a career, and, and I could read the landscape, that jobs just weren't going to be there, which was true. There were like three jobs in North America that I could have applied for. Mm-hmm. It just, um, you know, and hundreds and hundreds of people are desperate for those positions, so... I started uh, really thinking about what I could do. I actually had had a conversation with uh, 
one of my best friends from college three weeks before that recommendation came out that you really need to think about what you should do to take care of yourself and your family. And so pretty much the first thing that popped into my head when I finally let myself have this serious conversation about, okay, if you know your dream job disappears, I've always told people that you know doing what I did was my dream job. Um, if you have to career pivot into something that isn't your dream job, what do you do? And the first thing that kept popping into my head was tech and cybersecurity. And um, it'd be longer than we have time for right now. Uh, I'm not even sure entirely myself why um, that kept popping in my head. But I looked into cybersecurity and quickly thought, I don't even understand what they're talking about. So this is a little more technical than... um, I'm interested in getting into right now, but, you know, how about computer programming? I've always been interested in computers and the technology, especially um, as a humanities professor, the application of technology, like the intersection of, of technology and human, the messiness of human decision making, um, and how technology impacts us in ways that we're sometimes not even aware of. So, the, like, the human side of, of the tech equation but the technical side interested me too I used to build my own computers every few years from scratch just parts I'd order over the internet as a way to to keep me connected my um, part-time job in college was working tech support um, rebuilding students computers and stuff like that but I never ever studied um, like HTML web coding or any computer programming languages I was always like a, a hardware and operating systems guy so I thought, well, if I can learn how to be a software engineer or developer, then, I'm, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of tech jobs compared to the three jobs in classics that literally were available to me in North America last year. So I started looking up how to do that, and there's lots of resources out there um, for people to learn how to code and I started playing around with that. Uh, Khan Academy online is a great resource. Um, started mm-hmm. out for math mostly, but now they do almost anything. And I started studying HTML on that. Had a, a very timely, uh, often, you know, in these things, you need like the right conversation at the right time. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a conversation with my brother Christopher Thorne, who has actually been on this um, mm-hmm. podcast before. And he's a systems engineer, and he said that he knew of an organization in St. Louis called Launch Code, hmm. which runs free coding boot camps. And normally these things cost upwards of ten to $14,000, or it's free up front, but you sign a, an agreement that you'll give them like 20 or 30% of your first year's income if you do land a job in the tech sector. And this launch code program is literally free it's a non-profit unlike most of the rest um, that's funded by government grants and by um, St. Louis based businesses that want to hire well-trained people and so I managed to get in Um, the timing worked out great their program started right when my last semester of teaching at my previous university ended 
it literally was like a week later. And um, so I'm in the smack middle now of a six-month uh, online boot camp. It would be in person, but the pandemic's going on. And um, I've went from knowing virtually nothing um, a year ago to knowing almost nothing three months ago to now knowing how to write HTML, um, code JavaScript into a browser, have a user click on something and see the, the web page change and um, a little bit of more dynamic stuff. I just started in the bootcamp learning Java now, in addition to JavaScript and HTML. And um, at times, regularly go back and forth every day between, wow, I'm, I'm just learning stuff so fast, this is amazing, I'm so excited for my future career, and to, I don't know anything, you know, here I am, I'm in my mid-40s, and I feel like I'm, you know, back in elementary school, and how can I possibly take care of my family, I'm doomed, and, and then back and forth again, Yeah. every day, it's been quite the journey. Yeah. So, do you enjoy it so far, the, I, I guess? I do, that's a good yeah. sign. Yeah. I do good. enjoy it so far. Yeah. Um, my wife keeps asking me, so, is this something... You know, because this is like a big training commitment because I'm not actively looking for other jobs right now because I'm trying to train to do this thing. We're kind of putting our eggs in one basket right now because um, we have a, a kid and bills to pay and, um, you know, dreams to pursue. But every time I go to her and I say, this is kind of cool. Look, I learned how to do this, you know, method chaining of string manipulation and whatever and, yeah. So, I, yeah, the the technical side of it is um, sufficiently interesting to me. Um, I, I think it's I'm the rare kind of person who enjoys linguistic grammar and syntax, just for its own sake. As like language is language is human art that we open our mouths, vibrate our vocal cords, and produce art every time we speak. We could choose what order to use words in, how we use our phrases, if we, you know, emphasize something by bringing our voice up or down. This is all art, and there's a kind of beauty to that, and learning the technical details of how to code languages. Like, there's more than one way to write a computer program, and there's kind of art to that, and it, to me that's just inherently cool. Yeah. So, I'm liking it so far, but it is a very different field than being a college professor studying the ancient Mediterranean. Yeah. So I don't know how I'll do in that. I've never worked in a traditional business field before. But I'm excited to um, dive in. Cool. Um, so, I guess just kind of still referring to some things I read on your Facebook profile. Mm -hmm. There was... Uh, Something you wrote there about being a participant in the beautiful letdown. Um, <laughs> is that like a, um, what's that band? Switchfoot. Is that a Switchfoot album? It beautiful. is 100% a reference to that okay. <laughs> song by Switchfoot. Yes. And um, I'm not that familiar with, I'm just familiar with the title of the CD. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. So what is the beautiful letdown? Um, the beautiful letdown, it's been a while since I listen to that particular song but um, I haven't updated that part of my Facebook profile in like 15 years probably okay. <laughs> uh, well Facebook's only about 16 years old so maybe 12 years mm -hmm. 
I can look it up on my phone here, but the beautiful so the letdown is that I am not self-sufficient. Okay, I see. I am not capable of being you know my own rock, my own island, my own castle, and everything's fine. I am not in full control of my environment, and um, what part I do feel in control over, I'm I'm pretty terrible at that, and I'm actually more selfish and more um, self-destructive than maybe I thought. Mm-hmm. But the beautiful part is that's actually the gateway to good news. Mm-hmm. In that, the we have a resource to turn to. Uh, God, our creator, and um, there is uh, some, some beautiful redemption in recognizing I'm actually kind of screwed up, but God can help me with that. Okay. I, the, the, the lyrics of that song in general, most songs in that album, quite frankly, um, mm-hmm. pretty amazing, hit me at a certain stage of life late in grad school when I was... Um, moving from sort of early adulthood into full adulthood and planting my feet on certain truths that I wanted to hold, not because I just wanted to, but because I felt they were true. And um, I felt, I I never thought of juxtaposing those words, you know, beautiful letdown, but I really like the lyrics of that song. I think it speaks truth in in a new way. Okay, thanks. Well, back to Greece and Rome. Yeah, I'd um, love to talk about Greece and Rome. <laughs> so I, um, I was talking with someone, and I've heard you know, these things expressed before about how Christianity, we take so much for granted, but it made a big splash in the world. Um, and our world, you know, the secular world even, is shaped by Christianity in, in ways that we don't even uh, realize because we're just... It's just all we know. Mm. And I wanted to understand that more for myself. Someone referred to a book called Dominion that just really gets into this. I forgot mm. the author. Dominion, okay. Okay, but Not anyway, um, I thought I would go back and I would start reading some of the Hellenistic writers because I thought that would give me a viewpoint, you know, a view of right. the ancient world. And then I could um, kind of compare that to like a Christian work the world afterwards mm-hmm. so i started reading cicero and okay. i read um well good for you most people don't just say that i've been reading cicero <laughs> um i think it's called on duties or yeah okay that's a good one and um i was just really impressed by him i just thought man i like this guy because he just has really high standard of ethics and everything so it, yeah um deo Ficiis, uh which is the latin title on duties is mm-hmm. I've never read it cover to cover, but I've had many reasons to dive into it for this or that research project, and I had the same reaction. I always come away feeling like this is a really powerful vision for like elevated human thought and action, as opposed to just you know taking advantage of people for whatever personal gain you have. So anyway, okay. go on. So really high moral ethics, mm-hmm. really self discipline, and things like that. Yes. But there was at a certain point where I thought, well, this does kind of maybe diverge from yes. like, you know, a Christian viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And that's when he started talking about um, 
how much love to give to people. And it depends upon the person. Like if someone is a very um, upstanding citizen, then he deserves a lot of your love. But if it's um, <laughs> a very kind of more of a low base person, then you need to, you know, portion mm. out your love, you know, a smaller amount. And I thought that's kind of different. Yes. Uh, Cicero, I mean, the, just the ancient, I, w- I will say Cicero in general, Roman society in general, and then I was going to say, well, actually the ancient Mediterranean in general, but let's face it, like all of human history in general, uh, the idea of honoring the least of these is simply not there. Hmm. It's simply not. Um, uh, I'm generalizing here, but it's a good start for thinking about how people in Cicero's time, which is around the time that you go from the B.C.s to the A.D.s, um, around the time that Jesus is born. Cicero dies like uh, roughly 40 years before Jesus is born. Uh, the gods who we take for granted as existing, the gods have their hand in how things happen and work out. So if someone is born to high station or someone is born to an impoverished family of very low value in the community, that's just how things are. And therefore, if someone's born to an important family or becomes an important figure, that's because the gods want it to be so. And... um, if you want to you know, align yourself with reality, you give more honor to the people who are in positions deserving of more honor. And um, it's not that you you have some moral obligation to be rude to to people of low status, but they simply are of low status, which means they simply are in an existential way of less value to the community. And so I think what you're reading is reflective of that. And Cicero, of course, belongs to the absolute highest rank of, of people in social status um, and intellectual knowledge in all of the Roman Empire at the time. So he would naturally rank himself as, as the highest. <laughs> um, because that was just a, a reality for him. He, was, he had worked up from a very obscure family to the highest, in, not even in Rome, but some town south of Rome um, and he, he, he was in an era where it was almost impossible to be a self-made man he was as close to a self-made man as you can get and so he was extremely proud of what he had achieved and um, that's something kind of in the background um, yeah. to Cicero but um, that also gave him a bit of an outsider status um, where he could reflect on things um, in a different way than some of the true blue-blooded Roman aristocrats might have Okay. I'm getting off topic. That's okay. <laughs> um, so, anything does, is anything come to mind as far as like something we might not realize that um, w- how the world is shaped by Christianity? Mm. And, you know, besides, like, so that is one aspect, I guess, because we do think of like right. unconditional love and and for the least of these, like you said. Is there anything yeah, else? That, that is not part of. Um, normal human societies, at least from my study of the ancient Mediterranean and modern Western cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, Because in general, uh, the traditional thinking is there's no like value-added benefit to paying attention to the poor. 
or the least of these, that doesn't get you um, things in life that people traditionally work for. Success, money, power, security. Mm -hmm. And so the focus of Jesus and the gospel on the poor, the widow, the orphan, that's weird, uh, historically. Um, and if that's just common sense to us today, um, there are reasons for it that I won't say 100% point Christianity, but if you take Christianity out of the mix, it just wouldn't be there, historically. I don't think that will come from places other than Christianity. Um, not in a sufficient way to match how we see that as an impulse amongst a lot of people in the world, um, at least in the Western world today. I always say Western world because once I um, started dating and then married a Korean woman, hmm. yeah, uh, the Eastern world opened up <laughs> to me in a way I hadn't before. I'm like, oh, I shouldn't say people are like this. I should say Americans are like this <laughs> because clearly there's a lot more than America in the world and my experience just broadened up. Right. Um, uh, let's see. As far as like just what people can add to me mm -hmm. and valuing that, were the older people um, valued in the in the ancient world who maybe mm. were no longer have that, you know, could contribute something, but just valued because of what they previously contributed. I would say. Yes and no. Uh, a common refrain in classical literature is how getting old sucks. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but that's, you know, I mean, that's been true for everybody. Because your body, body doesn't work the way it used to. You have more aches and pains. Some of your friends start dying off. Um, your eyesight goes, you know, th this sort of thing. Um, Cicero, actually, speaking of, Cicero actually has... Uh, a work that he wrote as he was getting older called On Old Age mm -hmm. where he complains about it but also reflects on how this is a period of you know in some sense you have the most collected wisdom and experience that you'll ever have mm -hmm. um, there was a sense of respect for elders not to the d same degree that you find in East Asia hmm. but there definitely is an inherent sense of respect for elders um, as people who understand the community and in a sense the elders are the one setting the example for how the community creates its own identity how it defines itself what its values are uh, the Romans for example and you'll find variants of this in any ancient Mediterranean culture but the Romans had a phrase, most maiorum, that is Latin for the habitual custom of our forefathers, or the customs of the ancestors. And it was, in, uh, it was inculcated into Roman children from birth that your goal is to achieve the standard of the custom of the ancestors. Mm -hmm. Growing up in the late 20th century and now 21st century, I'm going to guess that in addition to, you know, you know, like these are traditional values we hold, yes, every society has that, the idea of progress is inculcated into our children. Mm -hmm. That you know, all around us are 
you know, tech innovators, education innovators. Innovation is an inherently good word. We're disrupting an industry. We're doing things, you know, invest your venture capital money in me. The word innovation, innovatio is the Latin word. To the Romans, that was an inherently dirty word. It literally meant revolution. Like, I'm going to take all the good things my, my ancestors sacrificed their lives to achieve and intentionally throw it on the ground and spit on it. This is insulting. Innovation is a bad word. You do not do it. Even though, yes, innovation happens inevitably because every, everything's changing all the time. But they found ways to re- use rhetoric to disguise change as we're just doing the same old thing we've always been doing. And... Um, and so, that's definitely uh, something um, that that's, is, you know, a key feature of, of their society. And, and um, in that sense, the older folks get respected um, in a, as vessels of the customs of the ancestors, um, which we wouldn't necessarily have the same way today. Okay. To have that attitude, you'd almost have to kind of feel like we've arrived. Um, yeah, I suppose you know. so. Yeah, because um, from a sense of virtue and ethics. So the Romans, um, like any, uh, this is a loaded word, but any traditional society any pre-modern society, um, including ones that I've studied outside of the ancient Mediterranean world, um, in like the South Pacific Islands, um, Sub-Saharan Africa, traditional societies are full of stories um, that have these moral and ethical lessons. Think Aesop's fables, um, which are true fables, but the, the Greeks and Romans also had tons of historical stories of individuals who did something that display you know, like moderation, or here's a story that displays bravery, or here's a story that displays um, how a person responded to bad circumstances in a positive way. And they would tell these to their kids and make them memorize them, and then in school they'd have to make speeches about these historical figures who um, did these ethical things, uh, and sometimes who did really unethical things, but it achieves the same goal. I won't be like that, or I will be like this. And um, they just drank from the spring of ethical stories of historical past figures. Often they get a little bit mythologized as it goes along. Larger than life sort of thing. One guy blocks the entire Etruscan army by standing alone on a... like holding the entire army back on a bridge. And then before they can finally kill him, like how this would happen in real life is impossible, but he single-handedly holds an entire army back and then leaps off the bridge and swims to safety while buying time for his troops on the other side to like destroy one end of the bridge so the troops can't the enemy can't cross and, um, these stories Roman children just ate slept drank um, and the goal was to not necessarily you know you wanted to surpass the physical achievements of your ancestors but you only hoped to to match the ethical achievements of your ancestors they mm-hmm. believed that the Roman Empire Yes, it's built with, you know, soldiers and stuff, but soldiers and especially generals, the elite, doing ethically superior things. 
And in some sense, this is why the Roman Empire existed, because Jupiter and the other gods blessed our ancestors with great achievements because of their ethical superiority. Mm -hmm. um, and that was something that um, Christianity, growing up in the Roman Empire, could, um, you know, with a high sense of ethics, like, they're getting that from the Greeks and Romans, um, especially the Romans. A Greek philosophy is kind of a pursuit for intellectuals, whereas for the Romans, these stories, like, everybody, rich and poor, everybody can grow up uh, studying, studying those and, and, you know, hearing these stories of great achievement and um, that's something that aligns with Christianity with its sense of you know Old Testament stories of heroes of the faith and, and people doing these ethical deeds and such but um, there were uh, many vast differences as well um, for example emphasis on the, the humble, the meek, the lowly we've already mentioned that um, an emphasis on um, the gospel of Jesus Christ upends the traditional notion of um, political power in a very disturbing way. Um, as I studied ancient Rome more and more, I started to realize why the Romans... Um, at times, not consistently throughout all of the Roman Empire, but at times were very zealous to persecute Christians um, because you know, if you think about it, here you have the Roman Empire dominating militarily large chunks of the, well, the entire Mediterranean at the time of Jesus. Um, the entire Mediterranean from Spain, soon to be Britain, all the way down to Syria, Algeria to Egypt, um, even small parts of Ukraine were like vassal kingdoms to um, the Romans. We don't think about the Black Sea area, but it was true. And they're in charge. And here you have this guy. They understood the idea of like kings and kingdoms. Some kings were still in power, but just were kind of under the authority of Rome in a loose way. Um, a puppet kingdom, if, if you will. And, and here's a guy who's saying that the kingdom of God is breaking out into the world. And like an invisible kingdom sounds not just amusing and weird, but threatening. An invisible kingdom of a God who, it, he has to be against Jupiter. I mean, here's a God who, if he's not Jupiter and he's not part of the pantheon, and he's not just another god hanging out that is fine being in charge of his domain and whatever, but in fact proclaiming lordship over all creation, that means this god has to be against Jupiter. So there's some sort of divine war going on. And so there's instantly a competition. Uh, the Greeks were polytheists and the Romans were polytheists. So they're fine saying, oh, the, the Indians have these gods. Oh, the Syrians have these like foreign gods. That's cool. We got room. Wait, you're exclusive? Well, that's not even playing nice. Like, how can that be fair and just? You're claiming exclusive authority of your Yahweh God over everyone else. Um, 
in in a sense that's um that's not uh we would say like open fair and just that that's very exclusive and oppressive um i started learning how to to see early christianity from a roman perspective uh here the the christians come basically forming secret societies if you think of it from an outside perspective um they call each other brother and sister and then they marry brothers and sisters obviously it's not you know biological brothers and sisters but that's really weird language like that's in consciously incestuous language why would you do that and then um they are pooling money to collect uh you know to have resources to to feed the poor and the hungry and um that's essentially proclaiming like civic functions for a secret society like what are they doing over there you know so there were things going on though called like the mystery religions yes now were they kind of <laughs> similar in um i don't know if they'd call each other brother and sister but they were kind of like their own special secret group as well that's weren't true they? um yeah so mystery is a it comes from a greek word that means initiation it, all it meant was you had to be initiated into it um, mustos is Greek for an initiate. And they were um, sets of religious practices that required an initiation process. And then once you got initiated, then you learned about all of the um, religious rituals that were involved. So this is where we get our word mystery from. Like something that you don't really know about until you're inside the in-group. Mm-hmm. Um and there were, at the time, some famous ones to Dionysus, Demeter, um, and Isis, and a few others, Mithras and such. Um, and they're not, like, they're worshipping the same Greek or in, in Isis, uh, Egyptian gods that, uh, that anyone else can worship. Um, and so, in that sense, they're not being particularly exclusive, um, they don't think Isis or Demeter or Dionysus are the only gods. Um, it's just that we have a special relationship with this particular god or goddess, and due to that special relationship we have, we they, they're usually in the mystery religions with some claim of special treatment for the afterlife. So you can see a similarity there with the Christian teaching. And... You, it's definitely easy to see some overlap. There absolutely is some overlap with how an outsider would view Christianity and other mystery religions. Um, but you have a monotheistic um, secret society that definitely involves initiation. Mm-hmm. Um, but there isn't, from what I've studied, there isn't a sense of like, oh, it's secret. We can't tell you. Right? You have people going around trying to, like Paul and others, uh, many of whom aren't even mentioned, um, they're lost to history, but people going around proclaiming good news, that's all that gospel means, it literally means good message, um, they're good messagizing, in Greek it's a verb, so it's really funny, like I'm going to good newsize you uh, and tell you about good news that you can have a relationship with um, God, Jesus Christ, is um, God's messenger, 
and then as time goes on, you get the doctrine of the Trinity developing. As they're trying to figure out, well, who was Jesus? What the heck is this? this? I don't know. How do we explain him? Honestly, it's still hard today at times. And um, you have this group that says, because of their monotheistic um, uh, demands on, on how you act as a Christian, you, know, you can't offer a sacrifice to the emperor, which for us sounds like a mostly religious thing. That's an overtly political act. Um, there is no possibility of separation of church and state. It's not just that they didn't do it because they thought about it and chose not to. It's not even thinkable. Mm-hmm. The gods, like I said earlier, the gods are responsible for how things are. Like if you're born rich, well, the gods wanted it that way. If you're born poor, the gods wanted it that way. So why would you fight the gods and try mm-hmm. to act differently than how you are? If you know Caesar Augustus is in charge, Jupiter wanted it that way. And so you should respond accordingly. And if you're not doing it, that's an overtly political act. You know, concerning the gods, like I've read a little bit of Marcus Aurelius from Mm -hmm. his journal. Mm. And sometimes he seems a little bit like, well, if there's a god or something like that. Yeah, he's being expressly philosophical in those places. Um, Philosophers can do... um, yeah, he, he's speaking as a philosopher there rather than a political figure. And uh, he can, so he's, he's running thought experiments that in his day, to, in, in his day job, um, okay. you wouldn't hear him speaking in the same way, I'm guessing. Okay, so they believed in like the, I think you said the pantheon of gods. Yeah, pantheon. Uh-huh. Pantheon of gods. But it, that seems like it doesn't answer like um, the question about God in the sense that we think of God, because we think of God as like not a part of the universe, mm-hmm. um, the being from whom everything flows, the person that, uh, the being that you can't go anywhere to observe him because you can't get out of the universe. You, you can't, uh, he's not That's a part true. of the universe. Yeah. So like um, their concept of, of God's almost seems like it doesn't match the same definition and it doesn't answer the same question as like, is there this ultimate being from whom everything Yeah, flows? that is a really good point. So, that's a really good observation because you're right. The, so how did the universe come to be is a Uh, that's a philosophical question. The the Greeks would call that a question that has to do with um, natural philosophy, natural inquiry. And anyone who starts thinking that in the ancient Mediterranean is doing philosophy, not religion. Hmm. Okay. Um, Christianity from the beginning uh, the way it's being proclaimed since it's not just like you know Jews follow Jewish law Christianity is a little bit different it's taking religious practices 
which would be the Lord's Supper, um, you know, the breaking of bread together when, when Christians gather together, um, early hymns, prayers, baptism. It's taking those practices, ritual practices, and then with Paul and others adding theological discourse. And theology is philosophy applied to religious practices. And uh, for 99, maybe 98, let's be generous, percent of people in the ancient Mediterranean, they don't need to care about theology or philosophy. Um, everyone has personal philosophies of value systems. But um, just as, you know, back then or today, most people aren't um, pondering, like, the ontology of the number zero or... Um, what is the, you know, limits of, uh, um, you know, justice in, in various situations, um, and people just getting by with their day, um, because, you know, deep thought is hard, <laughs> and uh, usually we just wanted to watch something on Netflix at the end of the day. But theology, as we tend to think like, oh yeah, well, religion means that you think these thoughts. No, that's actually something that Christianity does by combining philosophy with religious practice. Religion is a modern word. The ancient Greeks and Romans do not have a word that means religion, which is a fascinating idea. So what, where do we get the idea of religion? Religion is inherent, has an inherently philosophical side to it in addition to ritual practices. But um, religion, while it, it, religio is a Latin word that means basically superstitious practice. Um, like, oh my gosh, a cat walked under a ladder. Like, what does it mean? Um, Cicero talks about religion uh, often in terms of negatively, in terms of like, oh, don't be religious, um, which simply means don't be superstitious. Um, Whereas then he talks about, like, venerating deities, which to him isn't religion. That's just good ritual practice, you know. Um, and so Christianity has to make inroads into secular Greek and Roman society. How are they going to do that? They can't just say, like, well, we're going to follow Jewish law because it's irrelevant. And people like Paul, who are highly educated use the language of Greek philosophy because it's simply all that's available to them and um, start talking in terms of like let's think about you know how the what the gods are and how they are and he's making appeal like he's not going to say hey everyone like let's circumcise ourselves like you know this sounds this is not an easy sell <laughs> to people um, so it's just saying let's follow some modified form of Jewish law He's going to use the language of philosophy. And um, once people have to start working out, like, who is God? Who is Jesus? What does redemption mean? Um, the language available to them is, is philosophical language. And so the philosophical side of religion, theology, this is, like, the idea that philosophy belongs to religion, this is by and large, what Christianity does. You do have philosophers doing this before Christianity comes, Christianity comes around, but in terms of making that part of religion, 
that is something that belongs to the masses. Christianity does this. And um, I think that's cool, honestly. Like, philosophy belongs to everybody, not just some educated elite. And um, just as access to God belongs to everyone, not just some religiously educated elite. So they wrestled with those those questions of, is there a, an ultimate being from whom everything... Yes, but most people don't. It's just um, Mm -hmm. uh, people of a philosophical mindset who want to wrestle with these questions. But for most people, it's just gods exist. I don't have to wonder about that. Gods Mm -hmm. exist. Um, The customs of the ancestors tell me that the way to stay on the gods' good side is to offer them sacrifices, say prayers, visit the temples now and then, do these things, and I've checked my boxes... And I've kept the, um, myself on the God's good side. So, uh, in general, ancient Mediterranean religion is based on not getting the gods angry at you. Mm-hmm. So even the... And Christianity comes around and says, we're trying to liberate ourselves from the sense of fear. In, in, in many ways, in Christianity, we still are trying to do that. Right? Because this is a natural human fallback. Uh-oh, I want to be good because I don't want God mad at me which is exactly the ancient Mediterranean way of looking at things. Um, the, the Latin phrase is peace of the gods. We want to achieve the pax deorum, the peace of the gods. That's why we do these things. We want the gods to, to continue to like us. Christianity says, God already loves you. He's not looking for some reason to get mad at you because you screwed up a sacrifice, said the word wrong, or like, the chicken had a weird gallbladder, which is literally what happens in, in Roman religion. Like, they sacrifice the cow, and it's like, shoot, the liver's got spots on it. Hmm. Find another cow right now and kill it so we can find a cow with good liver, because then we're, that's a sign that the gods are happy with us. Christianity says God loves you already. He just wants to have a good relationship with you. But we got some bad stuff, you know, going on in your heart and mind, and... Um, we can, like, through Jesus, we can have a restored relationship again. That's weird. That's really weird. So that would be, getting back to your original question, mm-hmm. after many um, side roads, that would be something else that Christianity brings to the equation, um, a religion based on love rather than transactions de- designed to avert anger. Mm-hmm. That's really radical in a way that we can't understand anymore. Hmm. Super radical. Yeah. I should have said that at the beginning. (laughs) That's okay. And today in our modern society, sometimes the folk or cultural conception of God is more of like this warm um, being in the sky who just loves everybody and, Mm. and and you just live your life however, you know, and he's Mm -hmm. just so accepting of everything you know sometimes Mm. i get the idea that that's kind of a modern concept of god um which is different than both camps that you Mm. (laughs) referred to i think Uh, but um anyway um so So, um, I guess 
was, you know, in the Jewish um, religion, there's the the idea of man created in the image of God, um, Mm -hmm. and there's that sanctity given to man just for that sake alone, Mm. whether they can contribute to anything to society or not. This was back when we were kind of, you were talking about that. Did they have any concept of that, like there's a sanctity to human life? For just the sake that it is, like God made you, and that gives yeah. you value, right? Um, I'll have a caveat, but no. Okay. By and large, no. Um, human life inherently did not have value that should be honored and celebrated just because it exists. Um. All ancient Mediterranean societies were slave-owning societies, and, you know, some people are born to slavery, some people aren't. Again, that's like, the gods are behind it. And um, if you were born a slave or born free, but your town was captured in war and you were sold into slavery, like, that's the will of the gods. So it sucks. Try to get out of it if you can. There were more, many more ways of getting out of ancient slavery than the American experience, which was uh, skin color based. But yeah, the ancient slavery was not. Um, but just to sort of accept it, and you know, this is not a world where people are saying, "Oh, well, we should, we should still like honor and value them." Um, people are pretty disposable. But there were always voices. Um, I'm know of them through early philosophical writings um, that predate Christianity that say things, and probably there were others who never wrote their thoughts down, so we'll never know about them, (coughs) who do say things, including Cicero, who do say things like, we are actually all in a brotherhood of men. This patriarchal society, so they're not going to say brother and sisterhood. These are male writers. They're going to say brotherhood. And even the poorest slave and the richest person are born the same and they're going to die the same and we're all living in the same nature um, natural world and we all are under the same god Theos, Jupiter, whatever you want to call him and so you do get philosophical reflection on how everyone deep down is the same um, but you don't see that widespread. This belongs to, you know, the the culture, the few culture elite who do philosophy and want to think those sorts of things. Um, Seneca is another one um, where you find this sort of thing. Um, Stoic thought, you'll find this more often than in some of the other philosophical groups. But uh, you don't get a sense of like, and therefore. It, Everyone has similar sanctity. Sanctity is a religious concept, holiness. Um, All that the word holy means is it belongs to a deity. And uh, so if, like, human life has sanctity, it means human life is held by God and given value and purpose. And that's not something you find, even amongst the philosophers, by and large. Yeah. Um, 
So just a while back, you were talking about how in the day-to-day life for a lot of people, mm-hmm. religion and stuff was just kind of a practical thing. Yeah. It's not so much like philosophical of like those right. big questions of life. But um, it seems like in some ways, even though Testament, I kind of think of the Bible as a really practical book. It's mm-hmm. really not giving us everything our curiosity might uh, crave, mm-hmm. but more it gives us what we need as creatures hmm. to relate to God. Mm-hmm. And even the first chapter of Genesis, like we want to know, you know, how it all happened um, mm-hmm. because we're in a modern scientific age. Uh, yes, yes. But I've been uh, reading some from uh, John Walton. Oh, yes. Yeah, and he yeah, talks about... I, I used to teach with him. Oh, did you? At Wheaton, yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. And he talks about how things, um, you know, it's more about how things function together. So that's like really practical. Yeah, understanding. I'd, I'd recommend, um, not that he's the last word on this t- subject, but yeah, I recommend John Walton to, to anyone on this very issue. Okay. Because, uh, as you said, his basic argument is um, the, you know, the writer or writers of, of Genesis are not writing they're writing for the the needs of the original audience not for what we want out of it you're not going to find much in terms of modern scientific explanation because that simply wasn't what they were interested in and people are always going to write about what is of interest to them and so what are the needs of the community at the time the needs of the community are at the time are going to be primarily in terms of identity who are we who is god what is the nature of our relationship to him rather than you know genesis isn't going to tell me what chemical compounds are like going on in the different days of creation Mm -hmm. because that's simply not what the original audience was interested in or needed to know right so anyway it just seems like it's really practical. How do I mm-hmm. function and w- how does everything work together? And I wonder if like our philosophical wrestling, if it's um, something we bring to the, t- the text more than um, what's what's there. I'm not for sure. but um, Well, the Old Testament, so the world of the Old Testament, um, the Jewish people of the Old Testament, their relationship with Yahweh uh, it looks a heck of a lot more like the Greeks and Romans dealing with their gods <laughs> than um, what you find once Jesus um, of Nazareth starts proclaiming um, something beyond mere adherence to uh, the law. He's saying like the whole point of the law was to build you in good relationship with God and um, and you just turn it into like righteousness litmus, litmus tests, you know, who's more righteous, who can feel morally and religiously superior to each other. So I'm gonna like break out beyond that and um, say like I'm the fulfillment of the law. Love your neighbor, um, love God, you know, pursue righteousness, that sort of thing, rather than pursue the law so you can act more righteous than your neighbor. <coughs> And because in the Old Testament you see a lot of, um, you know, averting Yahweh's anger, for example. Um, that's, yes, it's my wife trying to get a hold of me. 
So, uh, okay. anyway, you do see um, this kind of in-group in the Old Testament um, where they're trying to... You have a lot in terms of law codes. You have a lot in terms of um, ritual emphasis on ritual practices, which in the New Testament, um, because Jesus says, you know, or Paul says, uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, um, pointing us beyond the ritual practices to the importance of relationship with God through Jesus, um, rather than just make sure you know you're following all the ritual practices in Leviticus. Um, that really is an evolution of what we think of religion. Um, and so while there's obvious continuity, and I can see Yahweh even in the Old Testament isn't just another Jupiter. Um, you get stuff in terms of love and redemption um, and a desire to bring uh, all peoples under the umbrella of Yahweh's love for them rather than just political dominion. Um, there, there are substantive differences, but there's, I'd say, more similarities between the Old Testament relationship that people have with Yahweh and how people in Greece and Rome are trying to, to relate with their gods. After Jesus, you get something completely different and um, pretty revolutionary. So, as far as in the ancient world, the way they thought of things, so did they look up in the sky and think of like a firmament as in something hard and um, uh, something where the, the distance between us and where God is is like a geographical thing? And go ahead and take a minute to do that if you need to. Apparently my three-year-old son is wondering where I am. <laughs> yeah. Uh, usually I'm the one that greets him in the morning, so. Okay. It's like, William is worrying and curious about you. <laughs> so here's a couple, like a couple things together. So there's like, for one, there's like, is that, and that might be the way that the, Romans and Greeks thought of like the gods up there in some kind of physical geographical place that separated from us. But then also, um, it seems like the significance of Jesus being up in heaven, mm-hmm. maybe is it's not that he's somewhere else, but now he is, um, is in a place where he reigns over the events of earth um, because he's in the spiritual realm. Mm-hmm. So that almost seems a little bit different than, well, there's a, a place up there where he is. Um, and maybe there's like that significance um, to, it's not so much like, well, he ascending up to be somewhere else geographically, but rather he's somewhere where he's all authority has been given to him and he exerts that, you know, all over the, the earth. Um so that's kind of meshing two things together. But as far as, do you have any thoughts about just how the people of the time would think of things like that? Um, uh, well, the Romans and Greeks couldn't ever actually come up with any consistent notion of where the gods were. Um, sometimes they're described as, in mythological writings, they're just conveniently placed on Mount Olympus which is a actual mountain in northern Greece, but you can hike to the top of Mount Olympus and, of course, there are no celestial dwellings there. So that's 
even you know Greeks in ancient times can understand that's a metaphor for something okay. and um, they're most often placed in the in what we would call outer space um, from their ancient perspective above the clouds wherever the stars reside and uh, this is one reason why astrologically we start they, we started the ancient practice of naming the planets after the gods because um, unlike the stars the planets follow their own kind of interesting motions and um, not that they thought those actually were Jupiter or Mars or Venus but um, that the gods must be out there where the stars are because they're there every night they're eternal people you know live are born they die but the stars are always there and um, they didn't know about supernovas right <laughs> and so that's where the gods must be um, but then sometimes they thought like well no the gods aren't in any actual place at all they're just um, part of you know the invisible you know nature whatever nature is so the gods are just part of that and so they don't reside in any specific place and in Christianity too you um, you don't get any particular sense like Jesus lives in a, a specific geographical place um, or even in you know beyond some realm of the atmosphere um, Christians point up when they say heaven because by and large that's the direction of where the you know gods in general are considered to be they, they must be somewhere in a, in a divine area and most people thought of the whatever the star whatever thing the stars are in as divine because they're always there every night the stars seem eternal and the gods are too and so there must be that, that's generally up is just a convenient location for that but of course right the Greeks had underworld deities like Hades and um, other um, Persephone lives in the underworld and, and um, you have various uh, underworld deities too which uh, Christianity doesn't so there is this a kind of a general eh somewhere in that direction but they didn't tend to place heaven in um, a specific geographical place. So even the ancient Hebrews didn't think of um, uh, like God kind of above the firmament or something? Or... I'm not an expert on that. Okay. That's uh, um, I don't. I don't think so, but okay. someone listening to this probably would be like, oh, how can you not know, you know okay. such and such? Which I don't, so. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Okay, let's kind of take a turn. Mm. So, um, when it comes to us and our lives and our spiritual connection to God mm -hmm. and things like that. So, you know, your background and education and everything, I can see how it just gives you like a philosophical advantage, you know, uh, just knowing history and the, the way other people have thought through things mm -hmm. and just knowing our own scriptures, you know, um, it kind of removes this surface level. Like if we uh, use technology for a metaphor, you know, when you use a graphic user interface, mm -hmm. rather getting into the command line and just mm -hmm. everything, you know, it's kind of the, the user base is kind of clunky, you know, it's like mm -hmm. a, something in between the two. Um, so how, if you could sum up, like, 
what you have gained from that in just your understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, and what it all means to you. Um, how would you put that? That's a good question. The world is vastly bigger, more complex, and more interesting than we usually give it credit for. And God is vastly bigger, more complex, and more interesting than the world. I have, to a certain degree, gotten past um, a kind of entrenched defensiveness about God talk that I used to have. Um, if someone has an idea about God that isn't like the theology that I was raised with or something, instead of getting defensive, I, I kind of get more curious, wanting to, to hear where you know that idea came from. I'm more open to accepting that the specific um, understanding of God I have right now is, is simply the understanding of God that I have right now. Um, God is bigger than, you know, any specific denominational set of teachings. Um, you know, even though John was a Baptist, God isn't necessarily a Baptist. <laughs> That's a, a joke we like to use in Baptist world, right? Um, and, uh, you know, God isn't Catholic. God isn't um, Lutheran or Presbyterian. God certainly isn't... Uh, 21st century Westerner. Um, uh, the world is so big and, and fascinating, and, and God is too, that my goal as, as a follower of Jesus Christ is not to try to like get everyone to follow the one right doctrine. Um, my goal is to try to get people to to get to know God and Jesus as much as possible um, I often pray at night my son's name is William God show yourself to William in in a way that that he will understand something that perhaps I, I do not that I never will and instead of being defensive about that I'm like how can how could God have possibly shown you some aspect of himself that he didn't show to me? As if one person could understand God in all, you know, possible ways. But I believe that there are things my wife understands about God that I never will. Could never. There are things I understand about God that other people don't. That you or my wife or son won't. And I hope that my son understands something about God that... I never will. And and he'll say, well, I think, like, as a follower of God or Jesus, you know, this is something we should do. And if that didn't occur to me, I don't want to say, like, oh, no, no, I think you're misguided. Like, this is the teaching we should follow. But rather say, maybe, maybe God is showing you something that I just don't understand. Um, that's not to say that, you know, everything goes. I do think there are things that 
God wants more than others, but um, so much of how we collectively um, understand God as groups. Um, I'm an American, um, have gone to you know Baptist churches, independent churches, Lutheran churches, and such. So much of the way we understand God is historically contingent, which simply means, you know, like, Christianity is arising in the Roman Empire. Um, Paul's using the language of Greek philosophy, not because there's something inherently special about Greek philosophy. It's simply what's there. And so, the Bible's written in Greek. It's not because Greek's better or worse. It's simply the language that is what people you're using in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um... And so all of that shapes how people understand God. If Christianity had arisen amongst Eskimo Inuit tribes, like there's going to be a heck of a lot of stuff that's unique to those cultures that is infused in Christianity. Not because that is who God is. It's simply the the vessel that gets us there. You know, um, we have to get to to God through cultural means, and understanding those cultures and histories helps me understand like, oh, you know, this is how things have developed. I understand God in part as an American because it's simply who I am. There's no point in feeling bad about that or good about it or whatever. And my wife, being Korean, understands some things about God as a Korean very differently than me. And instead of getting defensive about that, I say like, that's cool. That's interesting. Um... That's that's really neat, and um, I can see God in a bigger way, ultimately, than just through whatever lens I've been given. My lens is is useful, but it's limiting, and God is much much bigger than that. And so, some I get personally frustrated at the culture wars that often are waged in Jesus' name, because those are culture wars. Um, and I may even agree agree with them, but understand that you're fighting over s- some aspect of you know American identity or you know pick a country. Everyone has their culture wars. Um, but you know you go to another country and they're going to look at you and like, well, why are you fighting over that? Like, I didn't know that that had anything to do with Christianity at all. So that's my answer long rambling answer but yeah. yeah the world is is bigger and more complex than we often think and god is even bigger than that do you have any thoughts about what spiritual connection with god is you know because to know someone you're experiencing them and all humans experience God in certain common ways, like we experience the fresh air and the rain and things mm. like that, and life. But, you know, it, it seems like from the New Testament perspective that we have like this um, other way that we experience God, a spiritual connection. And it's um, a little... Uh, elusive just like what is that you know when I try to describe it um, it, it just the word that comes to mind most is just like satisfaction like when hmm. meditating on the word I just hmm. feel some kind of deep satisfaction okay um, do you have any thoughts about that like what 
what this thing is that when we, we talk about experiencing God yeah or the spiritual connection we have with God um, yeah um, so I'll, I'll just I can only speak for myself yeah but like, I'm not sure I would phrase it as satisfaction not that not that I haven't felt satisfaction but um, think of any think of any positive relationship you have with anybody you know um, a spouse a child a, a college buddy um, someone you know down the street and you know you could ask the exact same question what, what does it mean to have relationship with um, you know like Richard from work sometimes we go out for a meal or something you see them and um, you think oh I'm having a relationship with them gives my life a little more meaning what does that even mean I don't know how to, to describe that with God um, who I believe to be the the good creator of, of the world uh, he or she I mean right gender pronouns don't really apply but English is impoverished with the diverse gender pronouns so there we go um to have a relationship with God to me is a sense of, of connection with deeper reality that is satisfying and um, mystifying at times. Uh, it doesn't give me a sense that I have all the answers, right? Just as having a relationship with Richard from work doesn't give me a sense that, oh, things about work make sense now. But... Um, there's a sense of security about it, a sense of joy, and um, yeah, like some things in the world feel like the pieces fit a bit more because I have relationship with with God. Um, kind of like order. Like, do you listen to Jordan Peterson? No. Okay. I don't. He talks but, about order, chaos, but like God or. Yeah, would be like a so there's that satisfying yeah. order to life maybe yeah thinking of mm-hmm. I think it's, it's pretty much applicable to how we have relationship uh, meaningful relationship with anybody right um, and I do believe that God is a God of love and I've experienced it in my own life mm-hmm. sometimes it's a hard love <laughs> right mm-hmm. it's not like easy love sometimes um, but true love I've experienced it um, you can't fake it right I don't think I've like no one's yet successfully convinced me that I just invented it out of my head because I, I just had a need to create a God or something um, I believe it's real and um, love is is just satisfying oh my gosh mm-hmm. and uh, it gives you a sense of purpose of order of um Peace and security, yeah. It almost seems like the ultimate thing of what we are as humans is that connection. And yeah. you can even think of it as like connection with one another. Um, many things in our lives, um, you would think, well, this, you know, it, it helps us onto something else. Like, you know, if someone's into fitness, which is, you know, really 
cool, satisfying thing, mm-hmm. but you think, well, that supports my life so I can do this. You'd never think, that's what my life is all about, or right. there'd be a problem with that. Yeah, that, that can get unhealthy if you take anything instrumental towards something else to an extreme. Right, but so, then when you get to like connection with people, it's almost, you wouldn't, you could stop there. You could say, um, well, and it'd almost be wrong to say, well, I'm enjoying this friendship, this love relationship, so that it supports me and helping me go. No, you wouldn't do that because it's kind of like that final layer, and then God would be even the more ultimate type of connection that mm-hmm. just kind of defines what we are all about as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, like if we would say, I'm enjoying this friendship with you so I can get something out of it, we'd almost, you know, would see that kind of as wrong, somewhat like you Yeah, using like, a oh, so I'm just a tool for right. you, disposable tool. Um, yeah. So there's almost that ultimate quality of love connection, you know, to people and to, to God. Yes, and um, in that sense, uh, God is not a buddy-buddy friend, like we go for drinks after work, but a true friend. Mm-hmm. In, in the true sense of what a friend is, um, someone who like loves and, and uh, supports simply because of the relationship that's been created, not because I can get something. If, if a, uh, a good buddy of mine needs help, um, I'm going to want to help them, not because like, uh, and then he'll be able to help me next time. I'm in a, right. That's not my main reason, even if it ends up working out that way. Yeah. Um, I want to love and care for somebody um, simply because of the the shared history and a sense of connection. We're built for connection, as you said. Yeah. I have to wrap it up here. Yeah. yeah. Let's wrap it up. Is there anything you'd like to wrap it up with? Cicero has a treatise, uh, a work called On Friendship. It's not terribly long. Okay. You might enjoy it. Okay, cool. Yeah. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for being a part of the podcast. I've enjoyed it, and I really appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.